This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Check us out. Look at our, our webpage, the How to Love Lit Podcast.com webpage. We have all kind of information there, teaching materials, supplemental materials, everything you need to know regarding podcasts. And also, we keep you updated on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page. So become our friend and come along with us. Yes, and we'll include ridiculous pictures along the way as. And you can see just a little bit about what life in Memphis looks like, or at least in Tennessee. True. And we're also picking up uh, artwork from various artistic friends that want to contribute. So that's always a lot of fun. You never know what you'll see on that page. That's true. We appreciate Mackenzie Woodall and her contribution of Brain Man. And if you are an artist and you've got a picture uh, about one of these books, send it our way and we'll put it up there too. That's right. Maybe we'll make you famous. Oh, and by the way, speaking of famous, we have found out that as far as educational podcasts go, uh, we're happy to know that we have charted as high as number 14 on the podcast chart for higher education. So thank you for listening, and we hope that you've learned something, and we hope that you won't mind promoting us to your friends. Yes, tell everybody. All right, then. Now, enough of that. Let's get back to this. Uh, because there really is so much to say about this unique man 
and his unique perspective of the world, it's kind of hard to know where to start. But I do want to start by saying that John Steinbeck may be one of the most misinterpreted writers of the American canon, at least that I know anything of. He's been used to defend so many different ideas that he really didn't even have. That was during his day and later on. His ideas were definitely uh, of his generation, but as the great British poet Alexander Cowie eloquently put, talking about Steinbeck, uh, the quote is, perhaps this is the final responsibility of a novelist. He must be true to his time and yet yea, and yet save himself for time. And that time is with a capital T. In other words, Steinbeck was definitely a man of his generation and he gleaned so much from the experiences that he lived through. He spoke to social issues that were very specific to his day, but not in just some generalized cliches that you'd hear from a politician or maybe a contemporary artist uh, or something that we'd see today if there were such a thing like Twitter or other social media outlets. But he saw his contemporary experiences, truths that he had seen expressed for thousands of years of written and oral human history and tradition. He was super... um, knowledgeable about myths he loved the king arthur legends he was knowledgeable about the bible and he believed that these documents of old contain truths and so he tries to accurately apply truth as he interpreted it into the culture of primarily although not exclusively western united states of the 1930s so in other words lots of critics are quick to say that steinbeck was ahead of his time Uh, But Steinbeck absolutely argued the opposite. He was seeing the past and the present and thought he was explaining it. And people were at the time, and they really are still kind of impressed by this. So before we get into the life and times of the man or the person of John Steinbeck, let's look at the larger body of work and then get into the specifics of the particular book that we've chosen to highlight out of his 15 novels, three plays, 10 works of nonfiction, plus a bunch of short stories. Uh, And Gary uh, Steinbeck was born in Salinas Salinas County, California in 1902. So tell us about his world. Oh, I will. But before I do that, I would like to challenge anybody to name a critic. A literary critic? A literary critic. It's interesting. Everybody knows John Steinbeck. Nobody can remember any critic's name. Just want to throw that out there for fun. But I also want to point out that Steinbeck, uh, what I read was it said that he is the most widely read American author in the world. So if you're a non-American and you're going to pick up an American piece of literature, it's probably going to be a Steinbeck work. He's that well-known around the world. Well, and people love this particular book. Uh, well, my kids love it for very important reasons. Number one, it's short. <laughs> Number two, it has lots of cussing. Oh, yes. Number three, it has prostitution in it and all the fun stuff that you're not supposed to talk about in school. So it just has something for everyone. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I want to talk about Steinbeck's life because as I've thrown out many times on our podcast, the, the authors are products of their environment. And out of all the authors we've discussed, I feel like Steinbeck more closely followed his own personal experience in writing this book than any other author we've talked about. 
he's going to the scene of this of the book of my cement is exactly the town he grew up in it's well, exactly the place and the characters are people he actually really knew that's an interesting point because during the same time you had people like Hemingway and Fitzgerald that were over in Europe and at the cafes of France and uh, in Spain, and one time somebody asked Steinbeck about that. Why aren't you going over to the continent? <laughs> and he said, "Well, when I started, I couldn't afford to, but then he said I realized that that wasn't my thing. That I am a poet or a writer of the people, and this is where my craft is. And so he chose to stay and do exactly what you're talking right. about. And that's interesting to use of the people because he has a very strong egalitarian streak in the writing that we're going to get into." But let's talk about uh, his life. He is another one of these writers that's born at the turn of the century, which means he uh, comes to his teenage years during World War One, comes into his adult years during the decade of the 1920s, the wealthiest decade in U.S. history up to that point. And then he goes further into his adulthood during the Great Depression. And I can't impress upon people enough how important it is to understand what life was like for people who lived through the wealth of the 20s followed directly on its heels by the crushing poverty of the 1930s and the Great Depression. And I like to give people this perspective. Take a moment to think about whatever level your income is right now. Think about the standard of living that you are currently enjoying. Take that standard of living and cut it by 75%. That's what the average American was facing during the Great Depression, a loss of roughly 75% of their general uh, personal wealth. That's rough, and it affected everybody. It affected every social class. No social class was safe from it. There were a few people who were so tremendously wealthy, they had some insulation from it, but even the upper middle class was hit very, very hard by this depression. And it's going to uh, sweep across the entire country. Carl Degler, one of my favorite historians, had a great line. He just says that the Depression just ground away at the bedrock of American society. And he gave examples of how uh, parent-child relationships had to change because now children can get jobs and make money and the parents couldn't. It alters the dynamics of family relationships. It, the, you just cannot... Point, I just can't point out how different this experience was from everything else in American history. Well, you know, you say that, and uh, I think about my own personal family. My mamma, who lived exactly at the same time period, she's been dead a few years, but I remember from my early childhood, the way that she lived her life and her stories are a direct uh, reflection of what you're talking about. When she died, we went down into her basement. Actually, I didn't, my aunts did. And there were thousands and thousands and possibly tens of thousands of plastic grocery sacks because she never threw anything away. They had these uh, egg cartons that they used. Now, they built their own home, and they used egg cartons as insulation, and she never threw away an egg carton. There were thousands of them. I couldn't begin to count. Uh, and and, and And she died a very fairly wealthy woman and this was in this is also the way that they fed themselves she was in her late 80s and insisted on gardening growing tomatoes and cucumbers and she really she had arthritis she shouldn't be out there and my aunts would try to get her to stop and and she kind of had this fear that there wasn't going to be enough food and you know when I think about her life you know her mother died from diabetes and they her father couldn't support her, so she was sent to live 
with other people and had to do like the clean for food move, you know, on her early Mm -hmm. years. And, you know, you had to milk cows like, I don't know, over, I can't remember, like 10 or so before she went to school every day. And so this was just to eat and that wasn't even her family. And so those kind of things, I'm not going to say haunted her because she had a really good life. Uh, and they they were they did very well, but those habits never died. Well, you're describing trauma, and I want to just really emphasize the point that the Great Depression was highly traumatic for a lot of people. It affected people in different ways. In John Steinbeck's novel, we're talking about people who are primarily in an agricultural community. They were very differently affected. People who lived in the cities. Uh, were in sometimes much worse shape because they didn't have access to food. Farmers on some occasions were a little bit better off only because they had access to food, many times because they couldn't afford to process it and send it to market. So, But the Depression crushed every family in some way or another. And not only was unemployment terrible, but underemployment was terrible. Lots of people with highly skilled resumes working at very low-level jobs. And so dignity is wiped out across the board. And I think that shows up in this book a lot because there's a subtext of dignity that's involved in Steinbeck novels and and what happens when dignity gets assaulted and how people respond to dignity being assaulted. Very much a theme here, I feel like. But just to end on that, that whole idea, the 1930s, were, and they were a threat to everything. They were a threat to capitalism. The Depression uh, figures prominently into the start of World War II. You just cannot underestimate its importance on the landscape of humanity. And when was this book published? 1937, which, interestingly enough, the Depression starts in t- 1929. It hits probably its worst point in 1932. There's some slow growth recovery, but 1937, the year that this book is published, we have a recession. So imagine that, as if the Depression was not bad enough, you're going to have a recession inside inside the the Depression. depression? Yes. So I'm telling you, and the people who lived it came out of it with all kind of behaviors that, that showed that it scarred them for life. Wow. Well, my other grandmother, she was uh, the daughter of a wealthy doctor and he was one of those doctors that got paid with chickens and and stuff like that. They were from... uh, Reduced to a barter economy in a capitalistic country. Right. But she didn't suffer. I think... I mean, maybe she did and she didn't talk about it, but the, the stories that she tells is she went to college and they didn't have money for a hose anymore, so they wanted to go out on their date. So they got a eyeliner, and they would draw a line up the back of their legs so it would look like they were wearing pantyhose in an attempt to, you know, get the men, which I'm sure she did. Oh, well, there you go. You have to compensate somehow, don't you? Exactly but right. Even if you weren't crushed by the depression, you had family members that were. Oh yeah, you, you the community direct, was. Yeah, you had direct yeah. exposure to yeah. the worst the depths of it. And like I said, I don't know what it means to get paid with a chicken. I mean, I, I mean, you get to eat, but you know that that kind of barter system. I, I don't like. I said, it's a different world. A little feudalistic when you've been a modern capitalistic country. Oh, I know. And and the doctor, I can't imagine being in the position that you know. I'm sure they treated everybody if they had a chicken or not. So <laughs> there you go. Yes. Anyway. All right. On to on to Steinbeck's personal story. He also really didn't live in extreme financial hardship. His actually, actually his family was pretty well-to-do, although uh, not what we would call exuberantly wealthy. 
But his father kind of had some resentments that he didn't get to live the life that he lived because he had to do jobs that he, maybe what you're talking about, that he didn't really choose to do. And how that affected Steinbeck is that he really encouraged Steinbeck to be able to pursue his own dreams. And Steinbeck's childhood was really seems to have been quite happy in the Salinas Valley. The book starts with little boys running down uh, to the to the river, and that mm-hmm. could have been him, uh, so to speak. So um, he was allowed to give in free reign into the natural world, which he showcases in another book called The Red Pony. But uh, he was, uh, you know, engaged with nature and, and his community. And his parents uh, really did support his choice of career. I will say his mother wasn't thrilled when he dropped out of Stanford after five years with no degree, but uh, he was married to his then wife. He actually gets married three times, but his first wife is named Carol. And while he's struggling to be a writer, his dad sends him $50 a week all the way through those struggling years. Carol worked, but Steinbeck spent his days writing. And it is kind of sad that uh, his first big breakout book was published one week after his dad's death, even though his dad had really committed to supporting him all through those years. Uh, But while he was at college, this is interesting to note, he worked himself at a lot of odd jobs that were basically the kind of jobs that he writes about in his book, being ranch hands or road workers or deck hands or cotton pickers. And as a job, because he kind of was raised in this affluent community, uh, he became friends with all these people that are ultimately going to be characters in his book. There are a lot of Hispanics. That doesn't show up in uh, Of Mice and Men, but he writes a whole book about that, uh, mm-hmm. of his experience uh, with the Hispanic workers and with workers in general. And he kind of had a real regard, which uh, wasn't common for his day, for the intelligence and the effort and the hard work of not the middle class, but what I would call the working class, uh, which was unusual. I want to say one thing about that uh, that I think is interesting, and it's just a little side note. Um, out in California, where uh, Steinbeck is growing up, California is at a leading edge of what was then becoming called agribusiness. Back east, most farms were family-owned. They were still uh, small entities, some of them just subsistence farms, but some farms were getting large. California is the one of the first places in the country to t- to take the farm and make it a ginormous collective owned by a business. That's a new business model. And a lot of what Steinbeck talks about is how he doesn't like what happens to the individual when this agribusiness takes over California. Oh, for sure. And for that reason, after towards the end of his life, when you know he's written, he's going to write this book and then he's going to write Grapes of Wrath where he kind of just trashes that whole thing he becomes persona non grata in his home community because they can't believe he would he's betraying them yeah (laughs) that's kind of how they they see it but anyway back to the narrative of his life by age 27 he's going to publish his first book that uh, i haven't read it because people say it's not awesome so i just didn't (laughs) it's called (laughs) thanks for i know cup of gold uh but six years later is he's going to produce the Tortilla Flat book, which is the one that has the Hispanics in it and is, was funny and it was a hit. 
And after that, he doesn't look back. Right after that comes of Mice and Men, and Mice and Men becomes a play, and then he gets Grapes of Wrath right after that. And apparently they couldn't even keep Grapes of Wrath on the shelves. It just mm-hmm. was, it went out of control. It's going to ultimately win a Pulitzer Prize. And then he's going to have a ton more successes. Many of them he's going to help turn into movies later on. So financially, and well, he has some ups and downs because of, the whole divorce problem, but uh, financially, he's going to be earning money consistently from his writing, which is really impressive during the the, the depression era. <laughs> it would it's it, it's impressive today. I wish yes. I could do that. Oh. But uh, having said that, as successful as his uh, professional life was, his personal life is way more jaded. He is married, of course, three times. He's divorced twice, but I will say. He keeps at the game, and he finally finds true love. And uh, wife number three, it's really a happy marriage, Elaine. Uh, and she really helped him find some sort of balance in his life that he was never able really to find before that. Uh, and because he had been so unbalanced, I don't know, I guess one of these angsty artist types, um, his personal life had really struggled. He he didn't really know how to... He was a really shy man, and he had trouble dealing with the concept of fame. He never wanted to be famous. I mean, that was, you know, a lot of people perform or they're in, I've heard movie movie stars say this, I want to see my name in the lights. And he wanted to perform his art, but not in the limelight. Well, interesting enough, I want to interject this idea too. Uh, His book of Mice and Men is one of the fourth most critiqued books in all American literature. And, and I want to bring that up because when you write a book, you're, you're, you've got all your personal experience and your personal worldview in it, and you throw it out there, and all of a sudden, it becomes not yours anymore. It becomes property of the critics and property of everybody else, and you feel like you lose control of your art. I really think that is kind of uh, how we felt about it, and everyone was you know, trying to say, I mean, use his name to make a claim on his reputation for whatever cause uh, that they wanted him to have, which he was not a political person. He was accused of being a communist, and he wasn't. He was accused of being a warmonger during the Vietnam War, and he wasn't that either. Uh, what the problem was is he really saw the complexity of the human experience in a way that really kind of made him handicapped in dealing with the political world because the political world, and goodness knows we see this today, it's interested in drama and power and two sides of everything. And that's either this or either that. And although he wrote extensively about a lot of um, social issues, he just didn't see them in those kinds of black and white terms. And the politics really didn't interest him at all. I think that's interesting. He was always interested in the effect on the character, not the big overall arching outcome of some kind of movement. Right, exactly. Like he, you as a person. Right. How you are inside this this movement, this machine, how are you being affected by this cultural tsunami that you're a part of? Right. Uh, when he was, he received the Nobel Prize in 1962, and they said that they were giving it to him for his realistic and imaginative writings combining as they do sympathetic sympathetic humor and keen social perception 
Now that's an interesting way to phrase that. It's realistic, but imaginative. Because those two things don't seem like, yeah. But if you read his work, you can, that's why he uses all this profanity. Because it's very, very real and raw and gritty. And he can capture the emotion. Everyone feels emotional when they read these stories. So that's the imaginative versus realistic part. But yet, even though he's, these characters are, are unlikable in many ways and they're so rough. There's this sympathetic humor that you can feel. You are these characters and there's this, there's this call to social reform, although it's not political in nature, it's definitely human in nature. And that's what charmed the Nobel Prize Committee uh, when they chose to, to choose him uh, later on in his life. So having said that... We have chosen to talk about what uh, John Steinbeck called his play novelette called Of Mice and Men. Um, The book opens up, and we're going to see this, and we'll start with the first few lines. A few miles south of Soledad, the Salinas River drops in close to the hillside bank and runs deep and green. Uh, Now, I do want to talk a little bit more about kind of the, the mood and tone of that phrase, but tell us a little bit about, uh, and set this up for us, what should we know about Salinas, California? Well, we definitely need to do that. Um, but before we go there, I think it's worth mentioning that Of Mice and Men is probably not considered to be his greatest work. Um, Grapes of Wrath, which he writes within a year of this book, really drives America nuts with excitement and political divisiveness. He had um, spent a large amount of time with the so-called Okies and Arkies. And for those who don't know, during the Great Depression, there was a huge exodus out of Arkansas and Oklahoma into Central California and up into this area. And they were there primarily as migrant workers. So Okies and Arkies are Arkansas-Oklahoma transplants. And on a little side note there, they're going to settle sometime around Bakersfield, California, and start the second big country music scene outside of Nashville. But that's neither here nor there. Just thought I'd throw it in there. Anyway, um, so uh, he spends a lot of time with these people, and their story is really what changed him, and it also changed the rest of America. His critics are going to call him sentimental. Uh, Others are going to call him a communist, which we'll talk about that later on. He wasn't either one. In truth, he was egalitarian. And a Democrat, and a Democrat with a small d, a Democrat born of the idea of democracy, and I want to elaborate upon that in a moment. And uh, I'm not sure what political party he was a member of. It doesn't matter. But he truly believed in Jefferson's great words in the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, it's a much older concept than Jefferson that all men are created equal and are endowed with certain rights. He also took this one step farther, and he believed that what made man different from the rest of the natural world is that man had a responsibility to the world he inhabited as well as to each other. And I want to say one last thing uh, before we go on to our next point. And let's talk about Jefferson for a moment. And there's a historian named Frederick Jackson Turner who wrote a very important historical piece called The Closing of the Western Frontier. It's published in 1893. And his thesis in that book was, the, the democracy that we practice in the United States is extremely unique, and the force that shaped it to make it exactly the way it was was that we were always moving westward. And so this idea of western migration was always influencing democracy. Well, interestingly enough, and I'm just jumping off and making my own point here at this point, 
the frontier literally ends at California. And so there's nowhere else to go. And the evolution of democracy is under assault in California during the Great Depression. So in a lot of ways, Salinas is the end of the early democratic experience. Well, and I guess that's why he was so often accused of being a socialist and a communist, because I guess in before, if you wanted to move west, that's where you found your 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 freedom. Your I can be. I'm not somebody in the east because I'm I don't have any blue blood. But if I can go west, I can be something different. And then you there's no more west to go. Right. And so you run. Democracy in, now has to evolve to something else. Right. And uh, what's it going to evolve to hasn't really been defined. And he is identifying some really serious problems with the direction that it's going. Right. And and there is no element at any time where he's really pro-communist. Again, I want to go back to the point we made earlier that his main concern is the effect that ginormous agribusiness was having on the average run-of-the-mill worker. And that's not a new concern. That was an industrialization concern in this country since the 1880s. Well, and it has to be resolved. Uh, But he really didn't think that the solution to that was this equality of outcome like we think of as socialism. He wrote this book called The Russian Journal, uh, and he interviews and talks to and befriends all these common Russian workers, and he drinks vodka with the students and the farmers, and he writes all about it. But uh, it also conveys an unmistakable condemnation uh, for that system because it was also repressing many, many, many good people. So he does condemn the tyranny of the profit-based landholders who are obsessed with you know, oppressing people for profit but the solution isn't just, you know, oppressing everyone uh, as the way is kind of what he saw uh, on the other side of the coin. So uh, I guess that's probably where uh, I don't know. I guess that's where most people are. We just in general, people don't like to be treated poorly. <laughs> well, that's true. And uh, Steinbeck was absolutely not a political scientist and didn't even want to be. Uh, even these works are really just social commentaries. And that's very different from a political observation. So, uh, you know, he viewed himself as an artist that could observe and record what he called the struggle of man, which I feel like he really did. And he really believed in the democratic process and the creative process of man. And he saw uh, people really as having potential. And if man were given the freedom to do so, he could figure it out. So there's a lot of positive regard for the, the fate of mankind. His Nobel Prize speech has been really admired and studied. And if you go to NobelPrize.org, you can watch a video of it. He said he tried to write a really politically correct speech and rewrote it like 20 times. And in the end, he just ripped it up and wrote what he actually said the night before. But I think it's worth looking at it because he wrote it at the end of his career. And it kind of showcases his philosophy in some way. And by looking at his worldview, I think we can understand what he's trying to get across in his writing. So uh, the two big takeaways, in my view, are these. First, he says that a writer should celebrate man's proven capacity for greatness of heart and spirit, courage, compassion, and love. That's very positive. He also says that a writer who does not believe in the perfectibility of man cannot claim to have a true vocation. Well, and the positivity is really interesting because these books are dark. Yes, they are. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, his positivity with these characters. Right. Well, it's true. And uh, 
I think understanding that he he sees man in a positive way kind of helped me look at the books a little bit differently. It is a bit optimistic, and it got him accused of being sentimental, but he believed that until the end of his life. I think that's what sets him apart for Golding, or from Golding oh, for, for sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord of the Flies ends with man returning to war from war and kind of implies that violence is inevitable. But what I think you're saying is, although this book is violent, Steinbeck sees violence as the natural tendency of the natural world, but man has this kind of conscious ability to buck the system or to buck nature, so to speak. So man has agency. It's not completely deterministic. You know, deterministic would be you're controlled either by nature or by your environment. He's basically saying you have the ability to to incorporate a third aspect, which is your agency and make change. Exactly right. And we'll talk about that more next next week when we talk about him in light of being a naturalistic writer. Well, that's kind of how I've understood the literature to read. But I know we need to get to back to your question about Salinas. Um, it's just south of the San Francisco, San Jose area. And it's an agricultural community. Uh, it's exactly the world of admice of men and grapes of wrath. Well, I'm coming back to the science thing. He tries to describe it kind of as scientifically as possible. Now, Steinbeck's best friend, and this was his best friend for his entire life with this man named Ed Ricketts. And Ricketts was actually the inspiration for three different characters in three different Steinbeck novels. And one of them is the character of Slim mm, in Arba. The all-knowing Slim. Yes. And, that, and if my best friend were to make a book, she'd better make me. or he, <laughs> You better be the Slim yes, character. Yes, I better be the, the king of the ranch. But anyway... Ricketts had a lab, and at one point, Steinbeck was a 50% owner in the lab, and they would spend hours and days observing and studying marine life and writing down what they observed. And Steinbeck is going to take this scientific style and try to kind of impose it into his writings, especially we see this in his descriptive passages. Uh, Ricketts told him, and he's quoted as saying, see man as biology. So we're going to see Steinbeck experiment and try out a new style of writing, but also do exactly what he sees Ricketts as challenging him to do. Who is man kind of in his most biological sense? But he's going to use art and a lot of symbolism to really do this. Uh, We said before uh, that he called Of Mice and Men a play novelette. And the reason why I did is because it could be read as a play or you could read it as a uh, novel. In fact, after its immediate success, it was actually immediately turned into a play and 85% of the book was lifted directly from the novel. Uh, when it, This also made it really easy to turn into a movie and it's been done that at least twice. The first one was in 1940. But in the 90s, Gary Sinise came out with my favorite interpretation of it, and where he stars as George and John Malkovich stars as Lenny. That screenplay was written by a man named Horton Foote, and although it's clearly not an 85% pull from the text, it's really been become the standard. And if you haven't seen that movie, just saying you should. It's really, truly an incredible interpretation. Well, I want to go back and say one last thing about Ricketts. 
So Ricketts is the scientist. Uh, he's very much the, the evolutionist. Uh, yes. He's very much the determinist, the nature versus nurture guy. And so nature versus nurture guy hooks up with Mr. Uh, agency on the environment, which is the third part of changing the world. And uh, so they're, they're coming at the world from two different perspectives, but they're going to combine it, or he's going to combine Ricketts' ideology of nature versus nurture and self-agency and create this work. It produces some great works. Uh, the way the book is organized uh, is that each section is a clearly focused episode uh, in which Steinbeck evokes a lot of natural elements. You're going to see light and shade and darkness to convey a sense of lighting. Maybe this was how you would think of it this way. It's him trying to get you in your mind to put light on the right things as mm -hmm. if you were a stagehand and you were going to set up lights on the different parts of the scene that you wanted uh, to point out. So each of the six sections of the book starts out like this with these physical details of the scene and this interesting uh, play of light. So let's look at... Um, this first section and we're going to kind of go through we're not going to go through but just like a page and a half if you know you have my edition of the book but just the first <laughs> okay uh, but he says this a few miles south of Soledad the Salinas River drops in close to the hillside bank and runs deep and green the water is warm too for it has slipped twinkling over the yellow sands in the sunlight before reaching the narrow pool so what do we see our attention is drawn by the light to the river. So that's where the action is going to be directed. Uh, and I do want to point out that they're just a few miles south of Soledad. Now, I don't know if Soledad is a real place or not. I probably should. It is. Okay, look that up. But the word means lonely. Hmm. And that is our cue for, that's him tipping us off about what the book is, is going to be about. These Lonely people that he's directing us to. Because what is Christie's rule about novels? They try to give it away at the, the very beginning. In the very beginning. <laughs> and I want to point out, it's interesting. Every single chapter is going to end up with a very pastoral description of the scene. It doesn't matter how dark the dialogue gets or how dark the action gets. It always starts off with this really peaceful pastoral description of the surroundings. Right. The idea being that there's... Man, I mean, nature without man <laughs> is doing quite well. It's very beautiful. That would be your biological approach. Uh-huh. And on one side of the river, we're going to see the golden foothill slopes curving up to the strong and rocky, rocky, I don't know how you say that, Gabilan Mountains. But on the valley side, the water is lined with trees, fresh, willows fresh and green with every spring, carrying in their lower leaf junctures the debris of the winter's flooding and sycamore's with mottled white and recumbent limbs and branches that arch over the pool. On the sandy banks under the trees, the leaves lie deep and so crisp that a lizard makes a great skittering if he runs among them. Rabbits come out of the brush to sit on the sand in the evening, and the damp flats are covered with the night tracks of coons and with the spread pads of dogs from the ranches and with the split wedge track of deers that come to drink in the dark. Now, we just introduced... <laughs> rabbits and dogs which i feel so peaceful you should you should ha go to sleep now yes yeah. what a nice scene but he's gonna this is this gives me no warning of what's coming ahead oh no it doesn't <laughs> but i, I want to point out the rabbits and dogs because he's gonna pull these uh two 
animals from this scene and he's going to lift them out and they're going to be uh, mm-hmm. motifs and symbols that he's going to carry. He doesn't do that with all the animals, but he does do it with a few and he's going to carry these two all the way to the very end uh, of the story. Which would be a very artistic thread. Yeah, yeah. it kind of is. It's Like I said, that's why they call him sentimental. I don't think he is. I just think it's very artful. He's got a few pages to do a lot and he does condense this is a very condensed story. well you know what seems to be true of people who read books what they're sentimental everyone's sentimental i know <laughs> and so he what he did is he found his audience and yeah, again please which is everyone please name a literary critic i can't think of one but anyway evening of a, i'm going to skip a little bit and get to this point and then we're i know we're getting ready to stop but evening of a hot day started the little wind to moving among the leaves The shade climbed up the hills toward the top on the sandbanks. The rabbits, again, sat as quietly as little gray sculptured stones. And then from the direction of the state highway came the sound of footsteps on crisp sycamore leaves. The rabbits hurried noiselessly for cover. A stilted heron labored up into the air and pounded down river. For a moment, the place was lightless. And then two men emerged from the path and came into the opening by the green pool. So in the first paragraph, we're going to see this light, and then we're going to see the action is going to be taken um, through this grove, and we're going to stop. We haven't gotten there yet. Mostly all the action of the first chapter is going to happen around this campfire, and that's getting ahead of the game. But at the end of the chapter, just so you know, the light is going to fade out again at the end, and it's going to... Uh, you know, take us out, maybe like the curtain closing and we're going to be leaved, we're going to leave like we see here, left with the sound. And at the end of the chapter, it's a coyote yammering, a dog answering and the leaves whispering. Uh, One critic has said that Steinbeck uses descriptions of nature the same way that the Greeks use choruses and Greek tragedies. That's kind of an interesting comparison and Mm -hmm. it's kind of a nice thing you know, a way to look at how these descriptions are dispersed and, and can kind of bring some additional meaning into the story. So you see it in the beginning, you see it at the end of each chapter, and it's kind of weaving itself in and out of the narrative. And of course, our narrative is getting ready to begin because we have these two guys that are going to come walking in. They're both dressed in denim trousers and in denim coats with brass buttons. Both wore black shapeless hats and both carried a tight blanket roll slung over their shoulder. The first man was small and quick, dark of face with restless eyes and sharp, strong features. Every part of him was defined, small, strong hands, slender arms, and a thin and bony nose. Behind him walked his opposite, a huge man, shapeless of face with large, pale eyes with wide, sloping shoulders, and he walked heavily, dragging his feet a little the way a bear drags his paws. His arms did not swing at his side, but hung loosely. And that's what we'll stop for today. Yes, we'll stop with that. And I want to summarize very quickly what we attempted to do today was to give you kind of some working information on Steinbeck himself. First of all, he's such a historically huge and enormously interpreted author that we couldn't possibly go into the depths of all the different angles that have been analyzed on him. We just wanted to give you some working background information on him to help enlighten why he writes the way he does and then give you a little introduction. So 
Having said that, um, come back and listen to what we say about uh, Chapter 1 and set the stage in these characters and find out what's going on. And um, if you like what you're listening to, then please subscribe. Please follow us on howtolovelitpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. Come along for the ride. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.